0: That was a clip from a PBS Frontline program called Generation Like. I wish I had been able to actually download the program and excerpt a few clips, but I think that gives you the general idea that I want to use for our introduction here this morning. Since I couldn't actually download it, we had to settle for for that prepackaged piece there. But the program devotes much of its content to focusing primarily on how the new generation of media that is social media and the Internet makes all of us marketers and involves all of us in essentially advertising to each other now these ideas were really fascinating for me to watch I have a media background most of you know that and it highlighted the incredible changes that we've seen in the media that have transpired since I quit working in that field about 14 years ago however I have to also say that I found the show quite disturbing even though it was interesting in other ways, I found it disturbing because it revealed something about our basic human nature. But at least one way, it revealed our human nature on steroids. It also reminded me how incredibly countercultural that our faith is. We, as Christians, in case you haven't noticed, are pretty odd creatures in this world for many reasons, a few of which we will explore this morning. Now the disturbing thing about this program was how noticeably that innate human need to be liked, to be noticed, to be affirmed, and in the extreme, to be famous, was driving these teens and young adults. Being liked, even being famous, was a significant or even life-defining goal in many of these people's lives. Now clearly, this is not just an issue. So teens, young adults, don't hear me picking on you this morning. This isn't just an issue with teens and young adults. It's part of our human nature, this desire to want and need affirmation. We all want to be liked, right? That, I suppose, in and of itself is not necessarily a problem. However, the things which that need drives us to do, that need to be like, the things that that drives us to do, that drives us to think, that drives us to say may indeed be a problem and have a negative influence or a negative impact on our lives. And here's where we meet this very countercultural nature of our faith in Christ. That's because the Word of God shows us that our need to be liked, so to speak, is to be primarily satisfied in our relationship with Jesus. It's when we go looking for that affirmation that approval that judgment in other ways and from other people that we can go astray. If you have your bibles this morning, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 21 through chapter 4 verse 7. Beginning with verse 21 of chapter 3, we read, "So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And then moving on to chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another for who sees anything different in you what do you have that you did not receive if then you received it why do you boast as if you did not receive it so as we start this morning I wanted you to get the full context of this passage which is why we read all the verses that we did but I really want to focus this morning primarily on chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. So let me read those again now that I've given you the entire context of this passage. We hear the Apostle Paul speaking of himself, and this is what he writes. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me what we see Paul saying here at first blush if you just read this don't have any context don't have any understanding of the word might sound a little arrogant huh he's saying I don't care what anyone thinks about me yeah 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 I mean that's what he's saying right our culture might even affirm this idea with something like way to go Paul be yourself after all we should all say I gotta be me right Makes you want to sing a song, I gotta be me, right? Is that what you think of? Paul's saying, who cares what anything thinks, anyone thinks about you as long as you're happy with yourself? Now, wait a minute. That's not what he's saying. That's not what Paul's saying at all. Now, he is saying, I don't care what anyone's judgments about me are. If you leave it at that, you might be able to somehow get to this idea that you yourself are the only one you have to please. And if you're okay with yourself... Then you're okay. But look at what Paul says at the end of verse 3. I do not even judge myself. And he also recognizes that even though he isn't aware of anything bad that anybody could say about his current attitudes, about his current behaviors, he realizes that this doesn't mean that he's blameless or perfect either. Why is that? Paul knows he's fallible. He knows that his judgment of himself or anyone else is not perfect. He knows he might have blind spots about himself. Maybe he's unable to even see what some other people could see. Yet, nevertheless, he still doesn't really care what anyone else thinks or what he thinks. Now that's either arrogant or it's a level of freedom of conscience that I want to attain to. But again, we must read on to the end of verse 4. Paul writes, It is the Lord who judges me aha there we have it it's not that Paul just thinks others opinions about him may be wrong or even useless he knows that the Lord is the one who judges our hearts and our behavior it's not just that Paul thinks his own self-examination is flawed it's that the Lord is the one who judges his heart and what's more maybe even more important still, Paul understands that God has already rendered the verdict. He's already made his judgment about who he is, about who we are in Christ. Paul's life is not about what he's doing. It's not about what he will do. It's not about what he has done. It's primarily about what Jesus Christ has already done for him. That verdict motivates and informs everything that Paul does. Now, this doesn't negate obedience for us as believers. It doesn't mean that once we've trusted in that sacrifice of Jesus to save us, that we can live like hell. After all, Jim noted just last week, as Paul wrote in uh, Romans chapter 6, I guess I'm uh, one behind here, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to live in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So this understanding of the ultimate verdict isn't license to sin. It also doesn't mean that God cannot or will not sometimes use other people to speak important things into our lives. But an understanding of this ultimate verdict is freedom. It's Freedom. Because Paul is in Christ, he knows that the ultimate verdict has been passed down. It was passed down from the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. It was confirmed when the dead Jesus was raised again to the glory of God the Father. Now the ultimate verdict is the lens through which God views his children. From the moment we trust in Christ's sacrifice for us and forever thereafter, what God sees is his blood-bought children made perfect in Christ. So the basis of God's judgment of us, which is really, if you think about it, the only judgment that matters. If we get the like from God, we're okay, right? It's the only judgment that matters. The basis of his judgment of us is the death and resurrection of his Son as our substitute. Paul knew and rested in and found a genuine peace in the ultimate verdict now that didn't mean his problems were over but it did mean that he didn't need to worry anymore about anyone else's opinion of him or even his own opinion of himself the ultimate verdict gave Paul what pastor and author Timothy Keller called the freedom of self forgetfulness isn't that a great idea the freedom of self forgetfulness that's the title of a great little book from which I'm drawing some thoughts this morning Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. I believe we could say that included in the law of sin and death are all the challenges we face in this life, including that need that we feel for affirmation for people to like us. When you begin to think about it, this idea of the ultimate verdict impacts several different contexts in our lives. I thought of many as I was preparing this message this morning, and I'm sure there are more still that I'm going to mention. But I want to mention these. Resting in God's ultimate verdict, in our case, impacts our individual or I'm sorry, our individual sense of condemnation or forgiveness. It impacts our identity. It touches our self-image or self-esteem. It impacts our pride. It touches our need for affirmation, or in the extreme, our need to be famous. And it touches our judgment of others, especially other believers. Now, if you think about it, some of us live much of our lives somewhere between what Paul writes in Romans 7, verse 24 and 25, which says things such as, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then Romans 8.1, we live between that and Romans 8.1, which tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We live between those two realities, don't we? We recognize how wretched we are. We recognize there's no condemnation. Most of us are living somewhere in between those two thoughts. Now, if you've ever said or thought, my conscience is clear, why is that true? If you've ever been able to say that, why is that true? Is it because you're perfect? Is it because you see some particular instance or circumstance perfectly and you're able to say, well, I've not done or said anything wrong? You might think that, but you might be wrong. That's why Paul writes in our primary text this morning, I don't even judge myself. Paul's telling us that the only way we can truly say that our conscience is clear is because of the ultimate verdict. It's because for the purposes of eternal life with him, when we are in Christ, the verdict has already been handed down. So yes, our consciences can convict us of sin, and our consciences may be in a sense clear whenever we're repentant. But both these perspectives are covered by that ultimate verdict. In the case of conviction of sin, we know that when we confess our sins to him, there's forgiveness. That's one reason that we come to the table of grace every Sunday here at TCF. It's to remember that ultimate verdict. It's to recall and appropriate, that is, to take to ourselves and receive the forgiveness of our sin that's available only through Jesus' sacrifice. But what about when our consciences are not clear? what about when we feel condemnation what about when we live with on an ongoing basis condemnation or shame now again we have to note that these truths are for those who are in Christ those are key words here all of this is offered freely by his grace to those who are apart from Christ but we don't have these assurances unless we are in fact in Christ Yet. When we are in Christ, what does the word tell us? We read it a moment ago in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can have freedom. We can have freedom from guilt. We can have freedom from condemnation. We can have freedom from shame. We were all in the same boat apart from Christ. We were condemned. We were lost. We were without hope and without God in this world. But in Christ, that's all changed. And it's all changed because of the ultimate verdict. We can receive his forgiveness. We can live in a state of forgiveness. And in a state of forgiveness, we need not feel condemned. There will be times, if we really are in Christ, when we will feel conviction. But you know what? Conviction is completely different from condemnation. The problem is sometimes they feel the same emotionally. But conviction moves us forward into repentance and forgiveness. Condemnation just kind of hangs there over our heads. And it plagues us and it pushes us down into shame and it encourages us to wallow in that. But Jesus took our shame, so we needn't carry it. Peter, quoting Isaiah in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, writes, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, referring to Jesus, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never, never be put to shame. When we trust in him, we're never put to shame. That's because in the cross of Christ, God has rendered the ultimate verdict on our sin and on our shame. So when we feel condemnation, okay, when we feel unable to receive God's forgiveness, and at the same time we are in Christ, then we can be absolutely certain that it's the enemy of our souls trying to do everything he can to rob us of the freedom that we have in Christ. And that's freedom from shame and from condemnation. The ultimate verdict also impacts our sense of identity. Think about this. So often our identity is found in anything but Christ our identity might be found in our past it might be found in our heritage or our ethnicity or our things it might be found in our achievements or our accomplishments it may be found in what we do but when Paul says he doesn't care what anyone thinks of him because it's the Lord's judgment that has rendered the ultimate verdict One of the implications of this is that Paul's identity is in Christ. Paul was an apostle. Now think about it. He could have found his identity in that. That's kind of a cool thing to be identified as. Paul was also, before Jesus saved him, a persecutor of the church. He could have found his identity in that and found shame and condemnation as a result. Paul was a teacher. He was a pastor of pastors. He was an evangelist. He could have found his identity in any one of those things that he did. But none of those mattered. In an ultimate sense, none of those things mattered to Paul. His identity was in Christ. I'm an elder here at TCF, and God uses me as a pastor-teacher. But that's only what I do. That's only what I do. It's not who I am. Do you get that? It's a dangerous thing should I seek my identity in what I do. Because for one, what happens if I can't do it anymore? For whatever reason. Huh? Then who am I? Well, I'm lost. If that's my identity, I'm adrift in life. But my identity is this, and this is my anchor. I am a doulos. I am a slave. I am a child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So yes, in this season of my life, God chooses to use me to serve his church here at TCF. But whether or not that's God's choice for the next six months or for the rest of my natural life, I cannot let that become my identity. I can't let that become who I am. What I am is a blood-bought slave. I'm a blood-bought slave. Say that five times real fast. And God is free to use me however he chooses in any season of my life. What I am was decided when Jesus purchased that ultimate verdict for me, paying the ultimate price for my sins. Anything else is simply his sovereign choice for me at any given moment. Again, that's freedom. That's freedom. Do you see that? Because of this, I can be self-forgetful, because my identity is not invested in what I do, but it's invested in who I am in Christ. The theme of the ultimate verdict also impacts my view of self in other ways. Am I smart? Am I fun to be with? Am I attractive? And everybody said amen. (laughs) But think about it. Think about it for a moment and be honest with yourself. We care about these things. Don't we? We care about these things. So many of us spend so much of our emotional energy consumed with what other people think of us. We want to be seen as bright and intelligent. We want to be seen as good looking. We want people to like us. We want people to want to be with us. Where does that come from? Where does that, have you thought about that? Where does that come from in our nature? I think it comes from our innate need to be loved and affirmed. And Paul doesn't really address here whether or not this is right or wrong. He just recognizes that it is. Okay, this is, this is there. Whether it's right or wrong is not really important. It is part of who we are. He's telling us that this need, this need to be loved, this need to be affirmed has been already met in a richer and fuller way than any of us can imagine. God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Are you part of the world? Anybody out there part of the world, then God loves you. And indeed, he wants to be enough for you. He doesn't just love you. He wants to be enough for you. That's hard to grasp, and it's even harder to live out in our daily lives. But he wants us to be free of this need to esteem or to think highly of ourselves, especially for the sake of impressing other people. We read in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, For by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And then at the end of the passage that we read at the very beginning, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us, in other words, by our example, not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That's pretty convicting. Timothy Keller noted in the book that I referenced earlier that traditional cultures, and he says this is still true of most cultures around the world, always believed that too high a view of yourself was the root cause of all evil in this world. Isn't it interesting to note that it's just the opposite today in our culture, isn't it? We encourage people to think highly of themselves. Self-esteem, right? You need good self-esteem. Keller writes, the ego often hurts. That's because it has something incredibly wrong with it, something unbelievably wrong with it. It is always drawing attention to itself. It does so every single day. It is always making us think about how we look and how we are treated. It is incredibly busy trying to fill the emptiness, and it is incredibly busy doing two things in particular, comparing and boasting. C.S. Lewis points out that pride is by nature competitive he writes that it's competitiveness that is the very heart of pride c.s. lewis wrote pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next person we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking but they're not they're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than someone else do we see that so paul's telling us here in this passage of Scripture this morning, I don't care what you or anyone else thinks of me. He's saying that his self-worth, his identity, his esteem, his self-esteem, if you will, is not at all tied to what other people, or even his own verdict, what they think of him or what he thinks of himself. Can you see how freeing, can you see how freeing that heart attitude can be? If someone has a problem with low self-esteem, we in our modern world seem to have only one way of dealing with it that is remedying it with high self-esteem we tell someone that they need to see that they are a great person they need to see how wonderful they are we tell them to look at all the great things they have accomplished we tell them they just need to stop worrying about what other people say about them I've said these things we tell them that they need to set their own standards and accomplish them and then make their own evaluation of themselves but again Paul's solution is the exact opposite of this. His solution is to rest not in what's good about himself, but in the ultimate verdict, because it's the only judgment that matters. It's the only judgment that matters in the here and now. It's also the only judgment that matters in eternity. And it's a judgment that has already been handed down at the cross of Christ. So... Though it's well-meaning, it's really just a trap for someone to say that you shouldn't worry about anyone else's standards and just set your own standards and live by that. That's no answer. Building our own self-esteem is no solution. But rather than self-esteem, here's what I want to grasp. Here's what I want to get for me. God-esteem. I don't want self-esteem. I want God-esteem. I have God-esteem. God redeems me. He values me. He esteems me in Christ. I am a prized possession, not because of anything I've ever done or anything I ever will do, but because Christ lives in me. That's God-esteem, folks. Though I attain to God-esteem rather than self-esteem, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. Not even close. My guess is that most of you are not either, with the possible exception of Jim Garrett and Joel. Now, honestly, I don't say that to be funny, even though it is. Observing their lives for many years, they seem to be the closest I know to the freedom of self-forgetfulness that Paul is prescribing for all of us as believers here. But I'm also guessing that if you were to ask Jim or Joel, they would say that it's still a challenge for them at times. The challenge of resting in God's ultimate verdict. You know, after I preach a sermon, sometimes some of you will tell me that you appreciated the message. And I, like pretty much anybody else, will receive that affirmation with thanks. And I know that you're trying to be encouraging, and I know that that's a good thing. The Word does tell us to encourage one another, right? So that's a good thing. So you're following the Word, okay? But here's the thing. Though I admit that I like and appreciate and even relish that kind of positive feedback, I don't want to need it. I like it, I appreciate it, I don't want to need it. I wish it wasn't important to me. I want to be able to stand before God after this sermon today, after any sermon, after anything I do in ministry, and I want to know that I was obedient to the direction I received in His Word to teach this or that but I want to rest in his affirmation I want to rest in his ultimate verdict on me and not need or even want anything else that's not easy but I do want the ultimate verdict to be enough every day no matter what I do I want to be able to say just as Paul said to us here first Corinthians chapter 4 verses 3 & 4 let me read those verses again but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself for I'm not aware of anything against myself but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So I promise if you ever affirm me after anything that I do publicly, I won't say to you, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. <laughs> I, won't, I won't respond like that. But you know, in my heart, That's what I want to be able to feel, you know? That's what I want to be able to feel. Now, the flip side is that I don't want to be crushed by criticism. So, you know, I used to think it was just about developing a thick skin, okay? But it's not. It had nothing to do with the thick skin. That's a test for me and for you. If I were truly self-forgetful and truly resting in the ultimate verdict, I wouldn't be hurt by criticism. It wouldn't devastate me. It wouldn't worry me. It wouldn't bother me. When it does, I know that I'm putting way too much importance in what other people think, too much value on other people's opinions of me. It's hard for any of us to receive even good constructive criticism, isn't it? Even when we know people love us and are well-meaning, it's still hard for us to receive that. Wouldn't you like to be the kind of person who sees someone else win a prize? that you were competing for, and then genuinely rejoicing with that person over their accomplishment, even if you finish second, third, or worse. That's when we can start to enjoy the things that are not about me. My work is not about me. My accomplishments are not about me. Do you see how countercultural this is, especially in a generation where, as we noted from the opening video, the social currency is the number of likes you can accumulate. Yet this is gospel humility. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Let me read that again. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Think about this. It's only in trusting in Christ for eternal life that you get the verdict before you're expected to perform. Did you get that? Only when we trust in Christ, we get the verdict before we're expected to perform. In most of life, performance leads to the verdict. Mike, when KU steps on the court, their performance will affect the verdict, and the verdict is whether they win or lose. Sorry, Mike. His boys lost the other day. That's the verdict, and it's entirely dependent on how they perform, isn't it? The verdict is entirely dependent on how they perform. It's also pretty much true in every religion that's out there, even the religion that's foundational to our faith, Judaism. It's certainly the verdict depends on the performance. It's certainly true in Islam. You perform, then you're judged. But in Christ, it's different, isn't it? You get the verdict, which is forgiveness and eternal life. And what happens? The performance flows from that. The performance is the result of that. It follows that verdict. That's because the ultimate verdict is when we trust in the sacrifices of Christ. And when God sees the perfect performance that Jesus has already done as if it were our own. And then God adopts us into his family. The verdict is in. The verdict is in, folks. And now in this life, all that I do is a response based on the foundation of that verdict. I don't have to perform anymore to earn that verdict because the ultimate verdict has been handed down. And I can rest in that. I can find freedom in that. And I can do the things that God has given me to do, not to help me feel better about myself, not to have other people think better of me, not to... Build my self-esteem, not to satisfy a sense of identity, not to earn anything from God. I can do all these things for the sheer joy of serving the one who who've already rendered the ultimate verdict in my life. Because my identity is based in, it's founded in that ultimate verdict. Amen? Amen? Let me close with these words from The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, the book by Timothy Keller. We have to relive the gospel Every time we pray, we have to relive it every time we go to church. We have to relive the gospel on the spot and ask ourselves what we are doing. In other words, why are we in the courtroom? We should not be there. The court is adjourned. Like Paul, we can say, I don't care what you think. I don't even care what I think. I only care about what the Lord thinks. And here's what the Lord thinks. God has already said, it's recorded in his word, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And God has also said, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Live out of that. Live out of that. May that be more and more true of me. May that be more and more true of each of us that we would live out of and rest fully in the ultimate verdict. Now some of you have heard this message this morning and you're thinking, wow, that's me. I'm there, you know, I can relate to so many of these things. And so I want to give an opportunity to respond this morning. And so all I'm going to do is ask you to stand. If any of this, I'm not going to tell you what should have convicted you or what did convict you. I'm going to ask if the Lord has convicted you about any aspect of this ultimate verdict and your need to trust in that for your identity, for your self-esteem, All those things that we looked at I want you to stand now and we're gonna pray together and I want you to know I'm not just standing because I'm at the pulpit I'm standing with you as we pray dear Heavenly Father we thank you that you've given us this tremendous source of peace and self-forgetfulness in the ultimate verdict we thank you Father that when Jesus said it is finished as he hung on the cross That that's the verdict, Lord. That is the verdict that we can rest in. That we can be seen, we can find our identity in, we can find our esteem in. Lord, all these things we can find in the ultimate verdict. Knowing that when you look at us and we are in Christ, that you see us as your blood-bought children. Your children, your slaves, Father, who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And that's the way you see us. That's the lens through which you view each of us as individuals. Help us to remember that, Father. Help us to recall these things when we are hurt by criticism. Help us to recall these things when we feel like we have to do something to get somebody to like us or when we worry about somebody else's opinion about us, Father God. Help us to rest in this ultimate verdict and find true freedom in the self-forgetfulness that it brings heavenly father we commit ourselves to you and we thank you heavenly father for these wonderful truths in Jesus name Amen